Hello and welcome to this week's Ulster Rugby Roundup, your one-stop shop for all things Ulster Rugby from the Belfast Telegraph. I'm Adam McKendry. Thanks for your company on what is a very difficult week for the province. We were hoping this would be a bumper United Rugby Championship final podcast, but instead it's a very disappointed podcast instead that will serve as our season review now that Ulster's season is over. Joining me to do that are two of my familiar co-colleagues on the podcast this season. Hello, Jonathan Bradley. How are you? I'm very good, Adam. Very good. How are you? I'm keeping very well. Thank you very much for asking. And saving EasyJet having to cancel another flight from London to Belfast. Hello, Richard Mulligan. How are you? I am good, thank you. Um, good to see you both. It's been a wee while. Um, certainly from seeing Jonathan. And I mean, it's good to see you. I'm good luck on your new home, Jonathan. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's all right. It's falling down around me. Much like <laughs> the season, shall we say. <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel like you've kind of been dealt a really rough hand this morning, Johnny, because he, he's told us that he's been up since the crack of dawn and decided to rewatch the Stormers game, which uh, I feel like was just some kind of weird punishment for yourself. Well, because of the way that the match went, obviously, because you were uh, writing a report as if Ulster were going to be playing in a final, I felt that I had to go back and watch it to... Uh, to see when it became apparent that that was not going to be the case, rather because obviously the uh, the seeds of the uh, ultimate defeat, I suppose, were sown an awful lot earlier than the 87th minute or whatever it was. So. You just like putting yourself through extra pain, Johnny. You know, I um, probably watched the last five minutes of it over a number of times, um, but uh, that was enough for me, painful-wise. Funny enough, on Sunday morning, I did wake up kind of going, did that actually happen yesterday? Because it was uh, it was hard to believe. <laughs> Maybe we'll leave Johnny's uh, Monday morning habits to another time. We'll uh, <laughs> we'll we'll get on to talking about a bit of rugby. Just a heads up: uh, we didn't ask for listener questions this week, as we are saving them for a big listener question special next week, where we'll answer all of your pressing issues. But hopefully, we will actually answer a lot of them this week because we are going to go back over the season as a whole later on in the podcast. But if we don't get answering them. You'll get your chance next week. So without further ado, let's get stuck in. And uh, I think there's only one place to start. It's in Cape Town on Saturday as Ulster season came to a crushing end with a 17-15 defeat to the DHL Stormers as Warwick Gallant's 85th minute try and Manny Labox definitely went through the post-conversion. We say not wholly convincingly, uh, knocking Dan McFarland's side out of the URC at the penultimate hurdle and piled further knockout misery on the province. Before we get into the game as a whole, I, I know there have been a few videos circulating on social media, and I've watched a lot of them <laughs> trying to determine whether this conversion did definitely go through the posts or not. I was surprised that they didn't at least go to the TMO to look at it, because it was very close on the initial viewing. It was very close to the extent that I think all of the Ulster players behind the posts were questioning the touch judges. And especially given it's a semi-final, I really thought that they would have gone and taken a look at it in the TMO just to be 100% sure. I think it was Nick Timoney that actually turned to Mike Adamson and and, and did make the, the TV sign to him. Um, I'm assuming that Mike Adamson had... The best view of it, because I think the best view you would have had of where that ball went over or not was from behind the kicker. Unfortunately, the TV 
footage. You couldn't really see where the ball was going. And I actually thought he had missed it because I remember saying to my son as we were watching, oh, he's missed it. We're going to extra time. And then I went, oh, no, he hasn't. So there probably was a call for it. Um, I think wasn't there a drop goal in the Premiership semi-final between Leicester and Northampton where they went for a TMO review. Now, a drop goal is different from a conversion, obviously, and maybe can be harder to determine. But as you say, Adam, given the importance of it at that particular moment in time, and somebody in the pitch had said, look, can you check that? Mike maybe should have went upstairs just to get a double check. It does seem like a real sort of strange oversight that we don't have Hawkeye in rugby. Mm, that's a good point. Because, you know, like from watching that game and then flipping over to the GAA, which is obviously, it's a, it's an amateur organization. We'll put it that way. It obviously makes a lot of money, but it's an amateur organization. So they have this technology where basically the posts can be extended up in the air and they can be told definitive, definitively whether it's gone over or not. So for an amateur organization to have this, but for rugby not to have this seems quite strange to me. What I will say to counter all of this is while obviously you want fairness, you want uh, all of that credibility of the results, whatever, whatever, whatever. I think also we're going to get thumped in extra time if we went to extra time because they were gassed. They were out on their feet for the last 15 minutes of that match. Like, um, if it went to extra time, I think Stormers could have won by two scores. I, I texted a colleague exactly that at full time. Like, Libox kicked spared Ulster from potentially having a few guys collapse in extra time. Like, they were on their feet at the end there. And I think, well, just, just on the Hawkeye, by the way, whenever they extend the posts up above the posts, what happens if it's determined to be hitting the post? Is that considered over or? In rugby or GAA? In GAA, and then I would assume they would translate that over to rugby. Well, I believe, if you give me one second, because I do have this here so that I can, yeah, you can you can edit out this pause, but for the sake of accuracy. Live research on the Ulster Rugby Roundup. I'm just no. so impressed that Johnny has actually prepped for a podcast this morning. I mean, this is the first time ever I've ever, never, I would never dream of prepping properly for a pro- podcast. He's got GA technology and all in front of him. Fantastic. Well, I, uh, I, <laughs> I had to get up so much earlier than <laughs> I normally would have. I had time for these things. It's going to be very as, as we say, what, what Johnny gets up to on a Monday morning is not the purpose of this podcast, but we're really discovering a lot about you, Johnny, and your dedication <laughs> to your trade. No, I'm, I'm impressed. Years into this podcast, you should already know all about my dedication. Unfortunately, my internet is not so dedicated. And <laughs> I, I, don't have legs. I suppose I suppose they could deem that the ball hits the post and could bounce in. Yeah, yeah like uh, that's, that's what I'm kind of... Yeah. Because the ball, depending on where the ball hits the post, it's either going to bounce in, bounce across, or bounce out. But that, that's what I'm kind of questioning. Like, mm. is there that area of grey where you you think it's hitting the post, but you can't really determine, is it going to kick in off the post? Is it going to kick back out off the post? So <laughs> even if we had Hawkeye, we could have been in a position where it hit the virtual post, and you're still questioning, would that have gone over or not? Look, Bottom line is, the kick stood. Ulster were saved the uh, the possibility of playing for another twenty minutes and getting beaten by a considerably bigger margin. Uh, Richard, 
fair result do you think Ulster had just done enough to hold on or where do you fall on that? I think it was that it was that period at the start of the second half where they had the opportunity to put the game to bed and they and they just lacked that clinical edge and the Stormers came you, you saw the momentum starting to swing really against them and, and we've seen this with Ulster quite recently you know and towards the end of the season where they almost went to a shell like and, and they're quite happy to defend and they defend very well I mean their, their defense was awesome and when the when the Stormers hadn't scored as the game was going deep into red and they got another another penalty and I thought Ulster maybe have done enough here what was really disappointing for me was that they allowed Stormers to score on the narrow side when they had one more player actually on the pitch against them. And that, to me, I kind of thought, oh, um, I suppose at the time, it's easy when you're when you're looking at the screen. And, and yes, you don't see the whole width of the pitch sometimes from the camera angle, but you kind of wonder where they were looking at and did they not maybe see that developing behind behind the scrum? But there was a point, I, I, and I did say to my son, I said, I think I'll sort of hold on here, you know, and then, lo and behold, bang. But... I think it was the third quarter when they had Stormers under the couch and couldn't take those opportunities. Perhaps with Burns having the injury that he's appeared to have, he needed to be brought off a wee bit earlier. Maybe McFarland could have gone to the bench a bit sooner for some of the other players to bring pressure legs on for that last 15 minutes. I don't know, but I did believe they were going to hold on. Before we go on to talk about the bench, because that was one of the biggest talking points, certainly that... I saw on, on social media after the game. Jonathan, you, you were mentioning earlier whenever we were talking about you, you sort of pinpointed the moment that you thought that the game got away from Ulster. When was it for you? Well, I think it's those 15 minutes after half time because if you take them sort of, you know, if you take it in sequence, they start the they start the second half with Williams that goes off his feet. They attack off that and you get the Tom O'Toole knock on. Then it's not long after that that you have a Stuart Moore who kicked very well, but he has this one kick out on the full. You've got 50 minutes into the game, so 10 minutes into the second half. You have the one where they attack off the scrum. Cooney pokes it through and mocks him, forces the guy into touch. Herring gets out at the front of the mall and gets turned over. Then from that, you've got the disrupted line out, but also still get the ball back. Attack off that, probably look the most like themselves going through nine phases. Stormers get pinged. I'm not convinced it was a penalty, but uh, Mike Addison gave it as a penalty. Also go to the corner and you have the Sinatla tackle on Herring. So that's 15 minutes at the start of the second half where you have one, two, three, four big turnovers in a 15-minute period when you had a chance to score. And look, it goes without saying in a game that tight, if you score once more, there's an entirely different complexion on the contest. So for a team that had looked so clinical against Munster and it even looked relatively clinical in that first half in terms of taking their chances when they came to turn the ball over on four occasions when you had real opportunities to score a try. And, you know, again, we're saying 
one try. You don't, you know, you don't need all four, but one try in those situations completely changes the game. And for me, I think probably would have put the game away because, you know, Richard says he doesn't think they were going to score at the end. There was a time when I looked like they weren't going to score all day, like, you know, beyond the first uh, 10 or 13 minutes, you know, they didn't score again until the 87th or 84th for the try. So, you know, their kicker, uh, Libic, as much as he ended up being the hero, looked really off form uh, for the majority of the game. Yeah, the missed drop goal, which was a good defensive set from Ulster, but uh, that looked like three points. You had the kick out on the foo, which was a big mistake. And Ulster were defending well. Um, so I, I really do think one more try in that 15-minute period uh, at the start of the second half would have killed it off. I, I think Richard picked up on one of the sort of biggest points that came from the from the game on Saturday. The use of the bench was potentially one of the most pivotal points in the game. The fact that Ulster decided not to bring off Tom O'Toole, not to bring off Rob Herring, two of your front row. Sorry, they, they brought off Tom O'Toole because they had to, because he was one of the ones that collapsed at the end because he had just given so much. They don't use Nathan Doak. They only use Ian Madigan whenever they have to, whenever Billy Burns couldn't play on. They tried to make Robert Balakun play on after he was in considerable pain and eventually brought Ben Moxham on. What did you guys make of the use of the bench or maybe more appropriately the non-use of the bench in that game? Richard, we'll start with you. Yeah, uh, I think Burns mentioned Balakun and, and, and I had mentioned Burns earlier. I mean, he looked in pain. I mean, and I thought Billy Burns had an exceptional game again. Um, but if he's struggling in a game that's as close as that, and you have players who you know can deliver for you when they come off, I mean, especially Nathan Duck. I mean, we know how good Nathan has been this season. And you've seen him come off the bench several times and actually close, help, really help close a game out. So I think there was an opportunity there in the last 15 minutes to bring him on. Burns, you've got Ian Madigan. I mean, Ian Madigan, yes. I admit he hasn't been used a lot. And when he has come on this season, he hasn't been absolutely breathtaking, but he's fresh legs and, and he can produce something just to, to tighten things up a wee bit and maybe even create something. Um, and Balakun as well, I suppose. They were limited with what they had on the bench. And your pack, I mean, Tom O'Toole, I thought he had an outstanding game. Um, and as you said, he was forced off. But I, I just thought the two backs, Cooney and, Cooney and Burns, there should have been that change made a wee bit earlier, maybe just to give it a wee bit of fresh, fresh legs, fresh impetus, see where they can take them. Johnny, anything Todd? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think, one, I am sort of conscious of the fact that two weeks ago or whatever it was, we sat here and we're like, why are Ulster signing a third-choice tight head? Like, or why are Ulster devoting so many so many resources into a third choice tight head like that doesn't make any sense and now we're going to talk about whether they have enough depth to win silver so i am conscious of of the uh of the contradiction here but i think there's an element of probably you have to look at the way that transpired almost going back to not to the same level, but almost back to a Mark Anscombe-esque degree of using your bench, of it's there to be used if it has to be, rather than it's there 
as an impact and like how many players does Dan McFarland think he has that can make an impact in a semi-final? I think on the basis of that, it's not a lot. The game that sprang to mind for me watching that game and watching the lack of the use of the bench was that Munster quarterfinal in the Heineken Cup. And I know that was Brian McLaughlin, not Mark Anskin, but, you know, in big games, you cannot rely on the 15 guys on the pitch to get it done. You need, and especially in Cape Town, where you're playing in 25 to 30 degree heat, where you're coming off a day and a half of travel and you're going up against one of the biggest type fives in the league and one of the most skillful and elusive back threes in the league, you cannot rely on the 15 guys to be able to drag themselves through for 80 minutes and still be able to produce at that level going into the final few minutes. But I wonder, is this a lesson for maybe the regular season next year rather than the playoffs? Because I think there were maybe just a couple of, or a number of the players on the bench that were just undercooked, partly because of the way the season went. Because, you know, if you look at the ERC regular season, like also used 46 players. There were only two sides, the Bulls and the Lions, who used fewer players. And the way that the season went, I think, with essentially a soft opening meant that it was so backloaded that it was always an important game, basically from November. Well, the the end of October, really, like that. The end of that <laughs> block of fixtures with the Connacht game. Yep. An awful lot of what you would have viewed as your opportunities to get these guys' minutes came too early. And then I wonder, in a way as well, were you almost hampered by the fact that so few players ended up playing in the Six Nations that you were getting the likes of Mike Lowry back, you were getting Robert Balakoon back, you were getting Nick Timney, you were getting James Shum. You know, you had these players available for these games. And I just wonder, was there a sense that, you know, obviously they weren't going to get starts in uh, in Europe or in the must-win league games. And I just wonder, was there a sense that these guys just simply hadn't played enough minutes? They were undercooked, essentially. They were rusty to be thrown into that. And I think it's natural. Because, like, let's be honest, we weren't calling this out at the time. I think it's natural to try and play your best team or something approximating your best team in games that are so important. Next season, I don't obviously they're not going to have a fixture list that's like the one that they had this year because I think that was just a quirk. But I wonder is it a lesson moving forward that you know you have to get these guys minutes because before I think we would have talked about having to get the young guys minutes so that they develop. But I wonder is it a consideration as well for next season of having to get guys that you know are not in your starting 15 and are never going to be in your starting 15 when everyone's fit, but just getting them enough minutes over the course of a season that you do have that level of trust in them. There's also be, you know, there's been some oddities, I suppose, in terms of selection, like Jordy Murphy's basically disappeared, things like that, you know, that um, play into this as well. Well, obviously, tight head's the big one where Marty Murr and Tom O'Toole have essentially monopolised all the game time in that position. And we've seen Gareth Milosinovic come in sort of towards the tail end of the season, get a few minutes. He got 
one start because he was kind of forced into the position whenever Marty Murr and Tom Luttrell were both injured. But you, you come down to a big game like this and he hasn't played enough that he's trusted to come in and finish off a game for you. And I think you're right, we haven't called this out up to this point. And it's something that probably did need called out because we, we it ended up being something that cost them. And you wonder almost, are Ulster going to be in this same position next year? Like Tidehead is going to be solved because you're bringing in Jeffrey to Mang Allen. But let's say it happens in Loosehead and Andy Wark is injured. Are you trusting Callum Reid with those big minutes in the big games? Because he hasn't played any big games yet. He hasn't really played consistently enough in the URC to be entrusted with those minutes. It's seemingly Nathan Doak isn't trusted to come on in these big games either. Like they've played him in big games because Cooney was injured. But you know, you bring him on for a minute at the end of the uh, Sharks game, whenever it was tight, you don't bring him on at all against the Stormers. Like, is it maybe not necessarily a lack of trust in the bench, but is it more just an an over reliance on the starters? Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right, and I think you can look at this game and the Toulouse second leg as almost companion pieces because we saw the same thing in Toulouse, and we almost. Like I talked about the first 15 minutes of that first, second half, but if you look at the last 15 minutes of the second half as well, they're almost mirror images in the way that Ulster played. Like Richard, I think you used the phrase going into their shell. And like, I think that's what it was. I think they started to uh, probably started to think that 15, <sighs> the game was going to come down to whether 15 points was enough or not. They weren't going to um, score again. After that, I think they started to kick the ball an awful lot more as they did in that Toulouse game. Like, it's probably an interesting tactical or well game management debate if you like and I'd be curious to know what both of you think like Ulster had the ball with 105 seconds left of that game now they were five meters from their own line but there was 105 seconds left and they kicked it away and I think that's an interesting element to this as well because now obviously we ended up playing for another 10 minutes after that, essentially, on the clock. But, like, you know, do you think that Ulster, with 105 seconds left, could they have held on to that ball? Or were they too close to their line? I think that's that's another point, that watching the game and chatting in the room with the others that were here, and I was saying, he's going to kick that ball away. away. Um, because any other team would have simply said, right, we're just going to run this ball up, we're going to run this ball up, we're going to keep it tight, we're going to be slow, we're going to run this clock right down. And you wouldn't have had another 10 minutes, Jonathan, because the situation would have been Ulster would have kept possession. And it's it's having confidence to do that. Were they so tired that they just needed to get the ball away because they, they didn't know if they could go through 10 or whatever number of phases it was going to be? But how often have you seen top class, whether it's international level or club sides, when there's a minute and 15 seconds to go in a game, right, we're keeping this ball here. And yes, you can get a wee knock on, but if you keep your discipline, there's no reason why you can't hold that ball for 95 seconds and get it kicked off the park when the clock hits 80. And I think you're right. And I couldn't believe the first time they kicked it out, of the, I said, okay, that's fair enough. They were in their own end goal area. And I said, that's, that's a fair enough decision. And you could, you could steal a line out or whatever. But was whenever you're in the. Well, like from Stuart Moore, like, 
There's yeah. a parallel universe where we're talking about Stuart Murray's pressure relieving kick. Yeah. And stealing the line out. Yeah. But from that, whenever they got the ball, it's... Yep. I don't know. I think, like, could you even have made an attempt to go through yeah. the phases? Because as yeah. you said, they weren't in their in-goal area in the same way that they were no. for the Stuart Murray kick. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And we always hear players talking about how it's so much harder to play without the ball than with the ball because it's so much more energy sapping. You know, you can you can almost rise yourself for a carry more than you can for a tackle just because you know you're kind of contributing to something that's leading to the end of the game. Like you you can make a tackle, but you know that they're gonna keep coming back at you. If you rise yourself for a carry, you're you're putting yourself one more step closer. 105 seconds is a long time though. Like it doesn't sound yeah, like much, yeah, but it's yeah. a long it's a long time against the team who have been better than you at the breakdown. And you know that referees in the latter stage of games, they'll say they don't, but they really look for offensive oh, breakdown infringements because they know that teams are piling guys in. They know that teams are desperate to hold on to the ball and just keep going through the phases. So as much as you can say, yeah, we can hold on to the ball for two minutes and then kick it out. It's a lot to it's a lot to actually do in practice. And this, I think, is where, ironically, if you had Nathan Doak on, you maybe get that fresh leg on, a good long box kick away. You reset maybe instead of it was more or less, you know, at the ten meter line. By the time Ulster actually made the tackle, you maybe reset on halfway instead of the ten meter line. You're maybe able to hold them out a little bit longer, and maybe you get it done. I Ulster, you- Ulster have been very good this season at saying we back the players on the pitch. And in fairness, there are very few decisions I can remember this year where you sort of thought to yourself, "They've made the wrong call on the pitch here." Maybe just that fatigue is what suppose, led to the wrong decision this time. I suppose the other aspect to it is you're playing against 14 men and you're maybe backing your, you're saying maybe that you're making a decision to say, we're back in our systems here. And we've seen how good Ulster's defence has been this season. Um, and they maybe thought well, we're playing 14 men. Maybe we can, we can do enough to hold, to hold this out by, by giving the possession back to them type thing. Um, because I remember asking Dan Soper one time about, the, I think, one of Ulster's games, their performance was actually better when they didn't have the ball. Um, and, and maybe that came into their thinking as well when they made that decision. It's it's, a, it's an easy job when you're sitting watching it on the big screen sometimes, I know. Well, that's it, because like, you know, yep. the margins the margins here are non-existent. Like, you go back to that Edinburgh game, which goes down as like one of Ulster's gutsiest wins of the season. One of their like, um, ones where they had to really, really dig deep and essentially, that's the product of the same situation. Yeah. But the Edinburgh player knocks it on, whereas the Stormers didn't. And it's, it's like I say, it's incredible how fine those margins are. Because if not, we're talking about a last five minutes where Dwayne Vermeulen has a breakdown turnover, steals a line out, and the story of the game is actually well, that's why you go out and pay Dwayne Vermeulen the money that you have. Um, we're also talking, as I say, about that Stuart Moore kick being like, imagine being a centre, having to play at fullback and being able to produce that in that moment. And especially with the season being over, there's always going to be these sort of recriminations in a game that finishes like that of, you know, should they have done that? Should they have done this? Should they have done that? Um, even things like, you know, the the Treadwell line-out penalty and you're looking at things like that. And it's, 
anytime, obviously, that a season comes down to an 84th minute try that has to be converted by the sideline, you're going to have these moments. And it's not even to say whether the things are right or wrong. I think they're just points of debate, if you like. So we're talking about the bench. We're talking about the management at the end. We'll probably go on to talk about um, backing them all rather than taking points. And these are all things that look brilliant in hindsight if a Stormers player knocks the ball on. Yes. That's something that Ulster essentially have no control over. If a Stormers player makes a handling error in any of that, you know, whatever it was, five-minute spell with the clock in the red before they score, then we're talking about how Ulster really got it out. A huge win in South Africa to get a home, to get a home final. I think one of the things that we also saw at the end there, and it's something that was questioned back at the start of the season, but I don't think you can question now, is how much this actually means to the South African sides. You saw John Dobson at the end practically unable to watch the kick whenever it went over. You saw the elation from the Stormers players whenever they won. I think we can now definitively say, and especially now that it is an all-South African final, they have been a good addition to this league. Well, there's no doubt about that. I mean, an awful lot of talk about an all South African final without anybody really, I think, that I've seen pointing out the fact that we have a South African winner. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a South African team has won this competition Mm -hmm. in their their first attempt. That's massive. Like, I'm huge. You know, I'm going to be writing my column about this this afternoon. Like, the fact that a South African team has won it in its very first attempt, despite the fact that they made such a terrible start. Can you imagine how hard this competition is going to be to win in the years to come? That's the big thing, Jonathan. I mean, if you go back a year ago and we were talking about the South African sides coming in and we were kind of going, well, it'll be dominated by South Africa and Ireland and the other teams will struggle a bit. And, And that has happened. But then all of a sudden, and people were saying, oh, they're going to end up dominating the competition. We were going, well, we don't think they are, you know. And and when they came over to the Northern Hemisphere and played all the games, and, and I think that they get one win out of six for the first couple of rounds, we all went, oh, these sides aren't maybe going to be as dominant as we thought. And people got that strange and, oh, right, okay. And then all of a sudden, as you say, Jonathan, a South African team is going to win the URC in its inaugural season, which is huge. And I think I totally agree with you. There was no opportunity Ulster had to win the URC this season because it's going to be very, very hard for them to win it in the future. Yeah, because before we would have looked at the possibility, and we might like we might be going down a rabbit hole, but like before mm. we would have talked about Ulster needing to, in order to win the URC, to get the better of Leinster on their day. Yes, you know that's that's essentially been our season preview for the past yep. three years, four years. Like that's absolutely right. And now you're looking at it being like, geez, you know, uh, you're going to have to beat a team like the Bulls. Like, I'm still relatively convinced that Ulster are a better team than the Stormers, even though they've lost to them twice this season. Yep. No, I, I totally agree with you. I think Ulster are a better I think the Stormers, I think, if I, I'll put my neck out and say, I think the Bulls will win on Saturday. I think they'll beat the Stormers. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think even looking at the two games, Ulster were the better side, I think, on both on both occasions, even though they came out the wrong end of the scoreline. And it came down to, okay, it was a disallowed try or a try that was awarded by a TMO, which was later said it shouldn't have been a score. So Ulster would have actually won that game if that hadn't been the way. This time it came down to a, a last a last kick conversion at the end of the game. So 
But in the season, I mean, you're talking about Ulster. I mean, Ulster beat Leinster twice this year. And okay, whatever team they played, they played. But they beat Leinster twice this season. And they're still not getting any silverware at the end of it. And you kind of think, what do they have to do? Yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for the rematch between them. to see how they would have played in the final as well. Sorry, it would yes. have been because essentially it would have been a home final that they were the ones that had to travel to because the Bulls were still in Ireland. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they were taking a wee 90 mile jaunt up the up the yeah. motorway. Yeah. Whereas also were the ones having to fly back cross hemisphere to their, as it were, home final. Yeah. Having, as Adam pointed out, completely emptied the tank as you saw by the likes of Billy Burns and Tom O'Toole, essentially just collapsing. Like, yeah. that's how yeah. much they put into that uh, semi-final had they come out on top. I'm just going to call myself Nostradamus here because I said in the podcast last week that it was going to be a close game right up until the end and the result would be in the balance and so it proved. And yeah. I also said that Ulster yeah. were... I also said that the fatigue was going to cost Ulster and it did. So uh, from now on, my predictions are gospel. I predicted both semi-finals horribly wrong. I said Ulster would win by eight, and the the that Leinster would win by ten. I think. They are. I I I actually went for um, Leinster to win by by about three points, and then I saw the bookies. The bookies made the made the the Bulls fourteen to one in some places to win that game, and I thought, do the bookies know something that I don't? And I unfortunately didn't put any money on it, and I did predict uh, predicted Lance, or that Ulster would win by I think it was seven points in the end, but. Um, Proved badly wrong, but um, I'm just reveling in this in this moment. I'm very happy. That was shell. After your lever shell, Champions Cup tip, Adam, you could have been a. Uh, I could have been retiring early. Like a punter column. <laughs> I think. I think one of the things for the competition, and um, look, I would have liked to have seen one of the Irish. I would love to have seen Ulster in the final. I would have liked to have seen at least one Irish province in the final, but I think it's. It is probably good for the competition, despite the fact that it's going to be either the Stormers or the Bulls that are going to win it. It's good to see a new name on the trophy. And, you know, if you, Ulster fans are, are left gutted and disappointed. I mean, if you think if you're Leinster, Leinster fans, I think they want to get rid of the whole backroom team. They want to get change here. And, and you know, Leinster have not become a bad team just because they lost the European Cup final and uh, have not made the, the, URC final. They did win the Irish Shield this year, so um, they have got. They've still got silverware. Well, this is. Uh, I think this is an interesting sort of wider point as well. Like, out of all the Irish sides, Ulster are probably still happiest with their season, even though if you look at it on a sort of surface level, it's same old, same old because they lost two knockout games that we're looking at and being like you know, in the aftermath being like, well, how did they lose that? You know, they were in a position to win. It feels very much like last season. It feels very much like any number of seasons over the past sort of decade. But it, like, we, we've no listener questions, but this was something that uh, long-time listener Ian Frizzell pointed out to me in, uh, on Twitter. It was like, the expectations for this Ulster season have probably been exceeded in terms of what we were talking about before the campaign and like I remember being like well you know also could finish top six I was thinking about this Jonathan pre-Vermeulen signing whenever we're looking at uh, you know losing Marcel and not having a replacement essentially but I think to come to a point where like 
essentially on Friday night. I think we all thought there was a real chance that they were going to win the, the whole thing once Leicester went out. So it's a it's a difficult balance to strike, I think, like between certainly what we would have said at the start of the season would have constituted good progress and then what felt like constituted good progress come Saturday evening. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to disagree with both of you. I, I don't think Ulster will be overly happy with their season. If you told Ulster at the start of the season they would take a lead into the second leg at home in Europe in the last 16 and would be leading in the semi-final of the URC away from home with 105 seconds to go holding on to the ball and they would lose both. I think they'd be rather disappointed. Like I understand in the wider context that getting to both of those positions is exceeding the expectations from the start of the season. But then the goalposts did shift. You know, as much as you can say at the start of the season, they would think getting into the last 16 in Europe is a good thing and getting into the playoffs in in the URC is a good thing. You have to then also take into context what happened during the season and they beat Leinster twice. They beat Claremont away. They beat Northampton away. Should have got one win in South Africa. Whether you want to be technical about it, they did get a win in, in South Africa. But, you know, if, if you're telling me that Ulster is sitting here at the end of the season going, you know what, we exceeded our expectations from the start of the season, I think you're setting the bar too low. I think they put themselves in a position where this season could have and perhaps should have resulted in a lot more and they didn't get there. Now, opening it up a little bit wider, some guys have made incredible progress. James Hume has made an unbelievable amount of progress to the extent that there is a legitimate claim for him to start against the All Blacks this summer. Mike Lowry's made huge progress. Marcus Ray's made huge progress. Nathan Doak has now emerged as a legitimate number two scrum half who's pushing to potentially start. Your squad as a whole... I think is stronger than when you started the season, especially adding in Dwayne Vermeulen. But if you were to say to me right now that Ulster are happy with how their season ended in both competitions and Ulster were saying, obviously they're not happy, but if if you said they were satisfied with how the season progressed, I would be questioning where your bar is for this team because I think they should be aiming for more given the position they were in. I wonder, is it fair to say that both things can be true, though? Because I think that you're right. Like To say that from their last 16 tie and the semi-final, they will come away from both of those thinking that they should have had more. Certainly, the Toulouse game, they will have been looking at that as a huge missed opportunity to host a quarterfinal in Europe against Munster, which, as we saw in the ERC, a mere month later, probably would have meant that on the balance of probability, you're saying that you really should have been in the semifinals of Europe this season. And I think that they will obviously think that they should have won the game on Saturday. So then you're saying, right, well, we should have been in the semifinals of Europe and we should have been hosting the final of the ERC. But I wonder, is it fair still to look at the expectations of the start of the season and measure it as... Maybe maybe not exceed expectations, maybe that's the wrong word, but just that there is enough 
to point to that they're in a better place than we thought that they were at the end of last season because it's easy to forget how down everybody would have felt at the end of last season, how even that felt like a window was closing because Marcel was gone and he was such a big part of the game, of the team. You know, the guys on Premier were even talking about it um, after the Bulls game that they think could see is actually better for the Bulls because he's not so central, because he's not, you know, the opposition game plan does not start with how do we stop Marcel Kutsia. And I think like you, you're you're right to mention the progress of Hume, the progress of Balakin, the progress of McElroy, which nobody would have predicted mm-hmm. at the start of the season. Stuart Murray being able to play two positions I think it's easy to forget that Mike Lowry started this season as a backup 10. He was not getting minutes and finished it as possibly the team's starting fullback and an Irish international. I think Tom O'Toole over the last couple of weeks, the last two weeks, three weeks, massive strides there. And I think the most encouraging thing you can say about all of that is that those players should then be better again this time next year. But I do think it's fair to say that while also saying that, as you quite rightly point out, Adam, like this season had the potential to post a ERC final and play in the semifinals of Europe for the first time in, well, 10 years and nine years, respectively, even though hosting the ERC or hosting the Pro 12 final in uh, 2013 wasn't really hosting the Pro, or Pro 12 final. Hashtag RDS. <laughs> I forgot about that hashtag. <laughs> If you look back at it, if you go back to when Dan came in and, they, and you had a European Cup quarterfinal in Dublin where Ulster nearly nearly got over past Leinster. And then the following year, you look at their progress. And I think this time a year ago, Jonathan, we were doing the end, I think it was the end of season podcast. And we were talking, and I was saying Ulster need to make the step to winning at least the URC next season. And I thought that has to be maybe where they need to aim for Europe as maybe a step too far for them. And I remember having the conversation and when we got into the conversation, it was about, well, actually, can Ulster actually finish in the top four to get a home quarter final in the URC? And that was the serious, and that was a serious conversation. And it wasn't being, well, maybe a few question marks around this and that and the other, but look, they achieved, they achieved that. And yes, you will look on as, and as you rightly say, Adam, in a season, they beat Leinster twice. They beat, Fairmont away and they beat Northampton again and you probably and haven't seen what they did against Toulouse I mean you went away in Toulouse and I mean and then you lose at home to Toulouse in a very close game and you lose a very close game against the Stormers you could say that it's, it's huge disappointment but it's when you take it all away you're kind of going yes this Ulster side has made progress if you want to put it in another context you take Leicester Tigers who beat Ulster last year Leicester Tigers are now competing in the Premiership final. And I would have compared Leicester and Ulster very much as two sides on the same development type of curve going into that, that semi final last year. And Leicester have taken that step on, whereas Ulster maybe haven't. But I think they've made that progress and it will hold for them. You know, nobody's turned around saying, we've got to take our learnings, we've got to do this. They've taken another step on the progressive ladder to where, you know what? it's not that far away from when they're going to win one of these big games. And it's just getting over that line and it's so hard for them. And Saturday was the golden opportunity and the goose is gone, unfortunately. Maybe something a bit more like 
ethereal i don't know but like is there anything to be said for just the way that people watch this team now like i would say the northampton game uh sorry the northampton away game and the monster quarter final now I know quite rightly you can say, right, we'll also got to this point in the league and they got to this point in Europe and you can be sort of very black and white about how you judge progress. But like, is there anything to be said for the feeling of watching the team in those two games is a mark of progress? Because I, like, I certainly don't remember for a very long time watching an Ulster team and walking out of the stadium and back, walking back home or walking back to the, hotel i guess as it was in northampton and being like that was just really impressive do you know what i mean like that was you know that 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 was something that we just watched they're, um, they're one of the most enjoyable ulster teams to watch yeah for a I long long time to be said for that you know is there anything in terms of progress is there anything that you can well i suppose, I suppose it boils down to the question of would you trade entertaining rugby for a trophy you know, if, if Ulster played the most boring, stodgy rugby that you could think of, but won trophies, would you accept that trade? Yeah, see, a lot of people said about the Bulls' victory over Leinster, oh, that was a dear performance from the Bulls. It's a big, powerful display, keeping it there. Very much like Saracens, the way Saracens play sometimes. You know, it's, it's about power. The French sides have the power. There's not a lot of flair sometimes. It's boring. But I always say, well, you know, it might be boring, but it's successful. Whereas this season, Ulster have entertained at, at a lot of times. I mean, even on Saturday, some of the back play was absolutely fantastic. And, and I mean, you we look did, at the didn't mention it. Sorry, Richard, to step across you. Yep. But you made a great point there. Robert Balakoon's offload for Stuart Moore's try is one of the greatest pieces of, yep. of offensive rugby I've seen all season. To be able to get between two players, be in a position to attract a third player because you're so dangerous, and still get the offload away to put him over, that was outstanding. That is one of the best offensive bits of rugby from an individual I've seen all season. Yeah. Ulster, yeah. Ulster have um, they've pulled out a few of those this season. Yeah, like This team is just enjoyable to watch. That back line, if you give them all is potentially the best in Europe. And I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. They are a young, exciting backline that could compete with any backline in Europe. And th this is a question, you know, would you trade all of that, one of the most exciting backlines that we've ever seen play for Ulster, for a boring, bash it up the middle pack if it won them a trophy? Sorry, I, I completely stepped across no, your no, point there. Right. No, no, you're okay because... You know, I was going to mention, if you look at the Leinster's back, and when they have their full strength back line out, and you watch them, was it against Bath and Montpellier, Toulouse, and you, I mean, the, the, they were just brilliant to watch. And a lot of my English friends who watch rugby, they're talking about Leinster's back line all the time. And then we were talking about Ulster's back line with some of the guys who understand the game, and they've seen it, and they're going, oh, your back line's really, really good. And yes, it is. And I think entertainment-wise, Ulster have Ulster are a good side to watch, but I suppose sometimes you need to look at who you're, who are the opposition and what do you need to do? What do you need? How do you need to play against them sometimes? And I mean, you take the Ulster pack on Saturday. I mean, I thought the scrum was under the cosh and against like Toulouse, Ulster scrum did very very well. So there there is an awful lot I think to be to be positive about. And as 
but I think Johnny makes a good point about you know you come out of the stadium or you you watch the game on TV and you kind of go, well, Ulster won that game, fair play, you know. Um, how impressive were they when they won it? No, maybe not that much, you know. Like even even this season, the first four games of the season are oh. a perfect embodiment of that. Where like Completely. there was sort of a little bit of, uh, I guess, tensions maybe the fair word to describe it between us and the team in the sense that the team were winning games and the tone was still a bit critical and there was almost a sense of, you know, what do you want? You know, <laughs> we're winning games, getting bonus points comfortably. And then you see much more of what the team's capable of from, I think, November onwards. Some days it got the results, some days it didn't, but they looked much more like the team that they should be. Obviously the monster game in the league monster games in the league, I suppose, being the obvious exceptions. The South African losses, probably fair enough under the circumstances. Then what we're really talking about then is the management of the T knockout game or the T knockout losses. And like it is very difficult because obviously everything this season was probably coloured by the Leicester game at the end of last season. And now we've all like again you sort of made the point, Richard, like we've seen how good a team Leicester have become this year. But everything this season, I think, even in the good moments, harked back to that Leicester game of have they learned the lessons? And the difficulty in judging the progress of the season is, again, it was two games, two knockout games that were poorly managed. And the Leicester game was poorly managed. And that's the difficulty because this is something that we've talked about, as I said earlier, for a decade like a season ends and then you're saying right well we we're going to learn x from this and we won't do it the next time and then this the two biggest losses of the season and the biggest loss of last season felt very similar in terms of where the feelings were i was i was looking at some of the ulster results over the season and i think it was, it was flashed up on the tv about how many times ulster had led at half time and how many games they had won i think it was 11 out of 14 games or something like that there but i was then that made me think well actually how many games have actually have ulster been leading at half time and either most of them they did win but how many games did they actually lose in the second half if you know with the points when the, the points score and there's quite a few of them where they were leading at half time went on to win the game by a couple of points or five points, but the other team had scored more points in them. And that was something that I thought started to come through. And that's what worried me on Saturday. They were leading 15-10 at halftime. You're wondering, can they do enough? Because they, they've they gone back and they've defended very well in games, but the other teams have scored more points. And sometimes it turns out the other team wins. And it's an important games that they have lost in those situations. And I think it's very difficult to know how you get that skill because it's not... Yeah. It's not something that you can practice. It's like, no, it's almost like we were talking about with Leinster in the Champions Cup final. Like, going back, and as I say, we kept talking back to that Leicester game because essentially it's 11 months before you get an, another chance in a game like that to show that you have progressed. So, like, I get the impression that Ulster essentially waited all season for another chance in a game like that Leicester game. And essentially unfortunately they lost both of them in a similar fashion in the sense that they held leads in the second half that they couldn't hold on to yeah yeah we're going to finish off our season review i'm going to ask you a few quick fire questions that i probably should have let you prepare beforehand but yeah. you can um, see the panic in everybody's eyes here as you just yeah yeah what, what's he going to no, 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 no. 
They're not. They're not tough. They're not tough. Uh, Rory McIlroy won the U.S. Open. That type of question. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. of, Yeah. Also, well, our ma went on Sunday. (laughs) We'd just like to pass our congratulations on as as the Ulster Rugby Roundup to uh, former Ulster fly half Niall O'Connor on carrying the bag for Rory and his fantastic Canadian Open victory. So. Uh, I'm sure Harry Diamond is maybe quaking in his boots that he may not be back on the bag for uh, for the trip to Brickline. <laughs> do we know if Harry is going to be back for, Harry's for this going to be week? Back. This yeah. is obviously yeah. completely yeah. off topic, but do we know if he is going to be back for this week? They seemed to confirm last night that he was going to be back in time for the Open. So yeah. I hope it's with the wife's approval. <laughs> I, hope he's, I, I hope he's booked with EasyJet. Anyway, some quick fire questions. Uh, player of the year for you guys? James Hume. James Hume, yeah, go with that. I will agree. Uh, surprise player of the year, Ethan McElroy. I will say Ethan McElroy too, but only on the basis that we've been talking about Marcus Ray emerging for like three years now. <laughs> I, I'm gonna go with Marcus Ray purely because I think Ethan McElroy was sort of already on the radar as this could be a year where he nailed down a, a regular spot. Uh, Marcus Ray came out of nowhere and I know we have been talking about him potentially impressing but uh, I think this was the year where he really stepped up and I don't think anybody quite expected it so that's why he's my surprise of the year Uh, moment of the year Um, I'm going to say the win and this might be more personal than scientific but i'm going to say the win in northampton why i just i I understand that the win in claremont was probably seen as a bigger deal but i wasn't there (laughs) (laughs) i think the win in northampton was a moment where you looked at especially the back line and thought when these guys are on song they are a match for anyone I'd have, I'd have been going for the away Claremont or away Toulouse games, but Jonathan Nix, yeah. Surely I would have gone for Claremont. Answer, surely. <laughs> well, I, I was going to go away Leinster. Like the away game in Northampton was probably the most fun I've had at a game all year, but I can't choose it because I got COVID in Northampton. So that just kind of ruins the whole weekend. I mean, the, the relief whenever James Hume intercepted that pass and you knew the game was over, I think, was probably the the moment of the season. Just, you know, that we all know the record that Ulster have down in Dublin. And just for them to, just that moment of knowing that they were going to put a W on the board was pretty big. Richard, are you going to settle on one, or are you, are you split between a couple of moments of the year? I'm, I'm, I'm split between a few of them. I have to I mean, it, even, even that try by by Moore on Saturday, the whole build up to that, you know, as a moment, as in one game, it's uh, for me Claremont away because I've been Jonathan and I were lucky enough to be at Claremont the year before before COVID came in and destroyed everything for our away our away trips together. Um, Excuse me, I was there too. You, I know you were, but you know what I mean. And having been to Claremont and having lost and then seeing them beat. Claremont away, I think that for me was a big moment. Toughest moment of the year? Oh, Saturday without a doubt. Yeah, I think it's Saturday. Like, um, Absolutely. 
that's the gutted, it's the most gutted I have ever felt after a game. It, it even surpasses the quarterfinal loss to Leinster in Dublin. Uh, just Ulster, Ulster had that. And it's a personal thing because I would have been playing back to Belfast this weekend if they had got to the final. But no, it, it, it's the lowest I felt after a rugby match for a while. I had to actually go and cut the grass. <laughs> <laughs> But like, I think a huge part of it is the context as well. So like, essentially, as much as I think they should have beat Toulouse and as much as I think they would have beat Munster, I think they were undone by Antimac and DuPont. And like, that's going to happen, even though Toulouse weren't exactly at it. And we saw that in the next uh, couple of weeks. But I think just with Saturday having... Or going into Saturday, knowing that the final would have been in Belfast this Saturday, like it's just so the contrast between winning and losing is so stark. So that you know the season is now over. What if they had a one? We would have been building up their final this week. Well, I will give honourable mention to uh, to Will Addison's leg break because that was just a moment where you were like, "How much bad luck can one guy have?" Like that—that that was a horrible. A horrible moment too. I'll never forget the. I'll never forget the scream. You could hear it in the press box, Johnny, because the stadium was that quiet, and you knew when you heard that scream. You, went, oh no, this is not good. All right, two more to finish. Best individual performance of the season. Without a doubt, uh, James Shum last week. <laughs> like all all accusations of recency bias aside, James Shum last week. Yeah, hard to disagree with that one. I'm gonna go with Andy Warwick. I think Andy Warwick's been a great person for Ulster this year to where he's come from. I don't disagree with your selection on James Hume, by the way, but if there was somebody else that you could, I think Andy Warwick for me has been one of the standout performers for Ulster. He, he's definitely another for surprise player of the year that was in the, that was in the mix there. Uh, and the final one. Well, on Saturday, like he was really good. Sorry, both props yeah. were really good on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Kitschoff and Malherb, like that is a test prop duo if you like you know of the world champions really yeah and uh also should update like that's why i think that's these last three weeks are going to be so important for tom o'toole next season and we'll see what happens obviously with the summer as well yeah and rather appropriately our, our final question player you're most looking forward to watching in 22 23 jesus and, and, and this and, and this is this is from like uh who do you think is going to make the biggest stride next season as opposed to like, because we're, we're all looking forward to watching James Hume again. We're all looking forward to watching Mike Lowry, Mike Lowry again, but player, you're most looking forward to take a step in 22-23. Connor Chua, I think, would be one of, one of the ones I would like to see coming back in because he got that unfortunate injury just when he was starting to give, give us a wee bit of a show of what he had. I would like to really see him take a big step next year. It's interesting because, like, I've obviously mentioned Tom O'Toole there, but imagine theoretically if James Shum makes the same amount of progress from age 22 to 23 as he does 23 to 24. Like, if he does that, then you're talking about one of the best centres in the world. And also, honourable mention again for Will Addison and Jacob Stockdale. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to go with Jude Postlewaite. I think Hume is going to be away with Ireland a lot from now on. I think Stuart Moore maybe has an opening for him at fullback there to fill in whenever Mike Lowry's not there. I know we've got Will Allison coming back, but 
it certainly seems like Murr is settling into fullback very well. Postlethwaite was so good during the under-20s, especially having joined up with the squad late. There's definitely potential for him to come in and put his hand up in the centre, so uh, I'm interested to see how he goes. I'm interested to see how he goes, because if he goes well, obviously there's going to be um, a debate about uh, whether Ulster have too many centres and whether somebody should be uh, shipped a monster. <laughs> but we'll so, leave that outside of the group of pigeons until yes. <laughs> that's all we've got for this week that's our season review done and dusted and a, a very Adam, extended- Adam just, I just wanted to say that um, Quinns were beaten on Saturday okay a very difficult very weekend in the Mulligan household yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So really bad day. Really bad day. <laughs> Richard has been wallowing in misery for the past 48 hours. And... I may go and cut the grass again. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so many times you can do that before someone starts questioning you. <laughs> Super rugby teams are rapidly yeah. asking him not to start following them. Yes. <laughs> well, we have we have Paul Williams on Twitter who anytime he starts backing a team, they lose. We've now got Richard, who anytime he starts supporting a team, they lose. So effectively, any sports journalist who sort of says they are actively following a team, you're, you're a scud, essentially. And then yep. on the other side, you've got me, who any prediction I make comes true. Well, there so you are. Got to listen to you. We, well, say congratulations in advance to Ulster Rugby, uh, European and URC champions 2022, 2023. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there is an interesting thing to the English side of this that uh, the school that Jackson's at is now about to form a, a link with London Irish. So that's their season to scut it next year then. <laughs> <laughs> the Mulligans are just one by one ruining the <laughs> hopes and dreams of every English club. Yeah, Les will be on the phone to you in no time. Being like, yeah, he will. <laughs> Just quickly before we do go, uh, predictions for the URC final this weekend. Who's left in the trophy? Plans of the Bulls to do it. I think maybe the Stormers just because of the travel and like as much as I say that I don't think they're that good. Like, sorry, when I say that they're not that good, I think it's important to provide the context that I think they are like the fourth or fifth best team in the league. But like, I think things are just falling falling well for them, and the fact that the Bulls didn't even know that they were having to go back to South Africa um, until Saturday afternoon and seven minutes later than uh, planned on Saturday afternoon as well. I think that the travel back and forth, because bearing in mind that the Bulls had to beat the Sharks at home to then go to Dublin to then go back, I think that's just going to be too much, I think. I don't know. I think you're going to see I mean, once an Ulsterman, always an Ulsterman, Marshall Cassia with a URC trophy. Come on. <laughs> it would be just like an Ulster player to leave the province and win a trophy the next season wouldn't yeah, it? typically yes some boys coming up here haven't already won the league I suppose <laughs> true I suppose the only thing I will say to the travel is the Bulls have already shown that they can do it you know they've already shown that they can travel yeah. up to Ireland and uh, win back to back though yeah it's just as they can, yeah, they can do it again I suppose because yeah. well no, you're like you're hundred percent right because obviously everyone and with, with a six day turnaround, don't forget because they really got the short end of the stick, having to play Friday night, That's which true. didn't really didn't really get talked about. I thought that was very very harsh on them, making them play 
Saturday afternoon and then Saturday night, sorry, Saturday afternoon in South Africa and Friday night in Dublin, I thought was very, mm -hmm. very harsh. Mm. Obviously, it didn't matter, jot luck, but uh, yeah, but <laughs> well, anyway, that is all the time we have for today. We've uh, we've run on quite a bit over the hour, but I'm sure you all don't mind with uh, it's our season review, it had to be extended a bit. We had to get so much chat in, Jonathan. Thank you very much for your time, not a bother, pleasure as always, Richard. Thank you very much for your time. Really good, guys. Um, thank you. And uh, if I'm not speaking to you before the start of the new season or see you on a golf course, um, enjoy your summer. Yes, even though it is now the summer, we are still going to be back next week. The podcast will continue over the summer whenever Ireland are playing. And I'm sure we'll have a few special podcasts as well just to keep you occupied while we wait for the season to kick back into action as well. Whenever that's going to be, Ulster haven't announced any preseason games yet. So we don't know exactly when we're going to be back looking forward to a game again. But it will be sometime, I'm sure, around August or September. I, I think I I think I'm in the ballpark whenever I say it's going to be around about then. But it listen, is, it is actually worth noting that the season is going to be starting earlier this year because right. of the World Cup. So the sort of very late start that we had this year will not be repeated next year because the season has to be done in time for World Cup camps. I mean, if it feels like we're just gonna end up having like this. 36 month season that will culminate with the World Cup and then everyone will sit there going man we could really just do like a year off rugby again like <laughs> uh, I mean a global calendar would, would not go amiss wouldn't do Absolutely. Right. but wherever you're watching your rugby this weekend do it safely enjoy we'll see you again next week on the Ulster Rugby Roundup until then see you later